So I'm not going to go over the typical introductory slides that I have for these types of lectures because we've now had almost uh, 10 weeks of discussion about multicellularity. But uh, hopefully by now you've come to the conclusion that uh, multicellularity turns out to be a common solution to some ecological pro uh, problem that uh, really that we don't know much about at the moment. And so the question that my lab really is interested in is what is the genetic basis of the transition from unicellularity to multicellularity? And also what are the genes that are important for uh, germ soma specification? And we'll talk a little bit about both topics today. Uh, since my lab is just starting, some of it will be slightly incomplete, but at least we'll get you some of the insights that we have uh, that we've currently made. So what we're doing is we're using the vulvocales or the vulvocene algae as a prototypical model system for understanding the stepwise acquisition of developmental complexity. And we're doing this because we can actually use this system to identify the genes that are responsible for each of the transitions. And one of the great things about this meeting has been this long-term aspect here. Uh, we've always been interested in expanding our insights from the vulvocene algae into other taxa. And now that I've actually had a chance to work with others here at the meeting, uh, it looks like we have a plan for how to unify both, uh, unify the results that we get from the vulvocales with those from metazoa and possibly even the fungi. Uh, the hard part in all this is going to be unifying what we find from the vulvocene algae with prokaryotes. So when you're trying to find a model system to study the genetic basis of a transition, one of the nice things to do is to have a group of organisms with the range of phenotypes that you're interested in. Um, having more than two is useful. And so as I'll show in a second, the vulvocene algae have these range of phenotypes that we need. Uh, this actually turns out, the, turns out to be the most important aspect right here. This is really confounded understanding multicellular evolution in the uh, metazoan lineage. So it's, uh, this idea of having a recent common ancestor, so having multicellularity having evolved very recently. And then if you're looking for genes, having molecular genetics is absolutely important. And then going towards the uh, essentially what I posed on the first slide of the talk, uh, one of the really important things I think long term is not only having molecular genetics, but having uh, an ecological basis of the organisms. Because again, multicellularity is a response to ecological conditions that are selecting for this uh, morphology. So in order to understand the ecological pressures that drive these transitions, I think it's absolutely important to have uh, model systems that do have ecological relevance. So this is, uh, you've seen various versions of this throughout the talk. Uh, this is a slightly more expanded version that we've been talking about. Uh, this is the crux of why the vulvocene algae are so important for multicellular evolution, or for trying to understand multicellular evolution. Because we have organisms starting with Chlamydomonas, which is unicellular, and we have an entire clade of organisms that go through increasing levels of developmental complexity. So these are kind of the most interesting ones to my lab at the moment because it's trying to understand the transition from unicellular to multicellular. But then we have organisms that also have germ soma specification and then also Fulvox uh, cartery down here with true eggs and sperm. And so if you break this entire system down, uh, what's really nice about this is not only has there been this stepwise progression and increased complexity, there's also been independent gains and losses of character. And so some of these are highlighted over here. Uh, this framework is Dave Kirk's 12 steps of multicellular evolution that he's uh, applied to the vulvocene algae. Uh, I'm working with Carl Simpson to 
rethink this idea of the 12 steps because I think it uh, imposes some limitations that are not necessarily general or specific. But because this is the uh, current model for the boldness analogy, this is what I'll present today. So these morphological gains are the really important thing right here. So we've had things like uh, strephamine, which has had a independent gain of germ soma specification. Uh, we've had things like Yamagishiella that have had independent losses of germ soma. And again, here's a Volvox gigas, which has an independent gain of germ soma division of labor. And so basically what's happening in this lineage is the first five to six steps are essentially taking unicells, having them come together into something that looks either like gonium, tetrabena, or basoclamys. Um, it's not entirely clear if the cell number within these organisms is important or not. Uh, we're working on that through genome sequencing. So that's kind of the first, you know, basically half of Kirk's steps. Uh, and then the rest of them are essentially germ soma acquisition. And then down here in the organisms that are related to Volvox carteri is the gain of true eggs and sperm, so having true male and female isoforms. Do you know if tetrabena is actually a tetrahedron rather than a square? And when they come together? No, we don't. So, uh, no, we haven't actually looked at it in enough detail to say for sure. Uh, so the, some of the confusion that's happening with these organisms right here is these, as I'll get to in a minute, these morphologies are based on growth. So the number of cells in a gonium colony is based on how big it gets before it divides. And we're not sure if basoclamys and tetrabena have been grown under ideal conditions, so we don't know if that's a hard limit on their cell number or if that's just because they're grown under poor conditions. And, and these 12 steps are, uh, are, are just uh, the steps for bulbocene? Or, or is it 12 steps for, is it Kirk's 12 steps for all this is all for the vulvacine, uh, which is one of the th reasons why I've, I've been hoping to rethink this because, uh, for instance, one of the things that I really dislike about this is this idea here. What's partial germ soma, division of labor? And uh, it is defined in the literature, but it's very also abstract to me because it's kind of a binary switch. You either have germ soma or you don't. Well, also, it's a lot of these just seem kind of sort of specific specific to the system, like, I don't understand, like, you know, organismic polarity or basal body rotation, like, yep. couldn't we conceive of a multicellular system that evolved that didn't undergo those two steps? Exactly, that's why we're trying to get away to a more uh, generalized model. And so then the other issue, too, is the original idea was that these implied genetic steps, so it was 12 genes would be required for this. Uh, we have at least some preliminary data, as I'll show later in the talk, that step number three, for instance, may not necessarily be a genetic step, but maybe just a simple patterning. So just it's a consequence of proper patterning. Uh, so yeah, that's why, again, that's why Carl and I are really trying to get beyond this for exactly these reasons. And then you also get this, uh, this aspect down here that you know, essentially you know, full germ soma and asymmetric cell division, again, these are kind of interrelated steps. But yeah, so these are definitely uh, specific to the vulvacine. It's not entirely clear, but essentially what he's talking about is anisogamy versus true eggs and sperm. But I don't... What is anisogamy? Oh, having uh, germ soma specification, but not having eggs and sperm. So having two cells with different 
uh, genetic programs playing in them? Yep, so one that uh, becomes the germline so it reproduces, the other does not, so somatic tissue. But to me, those seem like two heads of the same coin. Just one is more differentiated than the other, if you will. So what I'm going to start with is I'm going to start with some of the results in my lab that we've been uh, generating that's uh, working on this first step, so trying to go from unicellular organisms to colonial multicellular organisms. Um, I'll show a little bit of data that I showed at the main conference, but I realize probably about half the people here were not at the uh, conference five weeks ago. And I'll show uh, at least some of the preliminary uh, insights we're making into using a genome-based strategy towards understanding how this transition worked. And so really the power of this system, as I'll explain in a second, is the fact that these two organisms, despite being morphologically different, turn out to be quite similar at the genetic level. And so kind of getting back to this idea of why the vulvacine algae are really important. So this is a, a phylogenetic tree from a very recent review about uh, how the eukaryotic lineage relates to one another. Uh, using genome-based approaches, we've now resolved most of the major lineages, except for the SAR, which is kind of a catch-all for a bunch of protists. But essentially, we have really good breakdown between the plants, the excavates, the amoebozoa, and the epistocons, where the uh, metazoans happen to live. But out of all these known eukaryotes, one of the uh, major limitations for doing these sorts of comparative genomic strategies with closely related or with a or increases in morphological complexity is the fact that most of these organisms have roots that go back into the metazoa that are at least a billion years old, if not two or more billion years old. <coughs> so the green algae, which sit up here, actually have an interesting feature in that their divergence from the plant lineage, despite having gone back clear to the root of the metazoa tree, have not diversified significantly since then. So the ancestor of the green algae basically stayed put for several billion years up until about 50 to 200 million years ago, and then the vulvacine algae diverged from a Chlamydomonas-like ancestor. So another important aspect about these is because of the fact that that root goes so deep into the eukaryotic lineage, the biology of the vulvacine algae are actually quite similar to what we believe a primitive eukaryote to have been like. And so we know that several biological processes actually are similar with the metazoa, which is a, uh, this lineage down here with cholendoflagellates and animals, so metazoa is actually animals. And so we know things like the cilian flagella are nearly identical, uh, basal body biology. Um, as I'll talk about here in a few minutes, the cell cycle is pretty well conserved. And there's several others. And what was surprising was when the Chlamydomonas genome was sequenced is that it was thought to be a primitive plant. And so it turns out, again, that this is not true because it diversified from an ancestor that was deep down in the uh, eukaryotic lineage. And one of the consequences of this is that Chlamydomonas shares essentially about the same number of genes or has genes that are shared with humans uh, that are not shared with organisms such as Arabidopsis, the prototypical plant. So again, these are the type of gene families that are representative of your primitive eukaryotic lineage. So not when they captured their chloroplasts? Yes. And that was recent or ancient? About a billion years ago. So uh, the glaucophytes are believed to be the, uh, the modern representative of the first eukaryote that captured a plastid. And then the glaucophytes have undergone a little bit of divergence since then. And then there's also uh, several others, but the glaucophytes are about the closest known ancestor to those that captured the plastid. The problem with the glaucophytes is the placid is dispensable. 
So you can, the, those organisms can get rid of their plastids uh, under certain conditions. And yeah. conve conventional plants independently capture the chloroplast? Oh no, sorry, that's a, as far as we know, both mitochondrial and chloroplastic acquisition was a single event. So all chloroplasts and all mitochondria, as far as we know, have a single descendant. Thank you. It presumably happened multiple times, but it's hard to say why one, one and the others didn't. Okay, so getting back to this idea of genetic similarity. So this is, a, I'll talk about this situation right here, which is the mating type loci towards the end of the talk. But when we did this initial work, uh, we were sequencing the mating type loci and we knew they were divergent because sex is more complex in Climatomotus than it is in Fulvox. So this had been known for a long time and the control for the experiment was to ask what does the genetic rearrangement look like in the autosomes of these two organisms. So again, this is unicellular, this is Volvox, which is differentiated multicellular. And the shock work, to me at least when I had done this work, was the fact that the autosomes, which are down here, are nearly uh, synthetic between these two organisms that have undergone 200 million years of divergence and also are morpho morphologically significantly different. And since Anakia is here, I can show this uh, figure from the Volvox genome paper uh, without uh, modifying it too much. So then the other way you can look at this is not only are these two genomes nearly synthetic, so the layout of the genome is nearly uh, identical between the two organisms, but one of the really interesting things was that when you look at the PFAM domains, and essentially what these are is these are units within the genome that confer function within the, the actual proteins that are made from the genes. So when you computationally count the numbers, one of the really interesting things that we found was is that the Chlamydomonas proteome has essentially the same number of PFAM domains as Volvox carteri. And this really differs significantly from the, uh, the transition from clinoflagellates to sponges. Uh, from Anaki's talk earlier in the program, it turns out that we need to rethink whether or not clinoflagellates are in fact the unicellular ancestor of the metazoa. But suffice to say, the thinking from at least the metazoan lineage has been that you have to essentially double the number of protein functions within your genome in order to involve more complexity. So what is a PFAM domain? It's just a, uh, it's called protein family. So these are computationally identified units within a protein. And when you do this correspondence on the left with these black lines and so forth, those are mappings of uh, similar genes on similar genes. Mm -hmm. And then one of them, or several of them, seem to be flipped. They're, 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 the lines all cross. Yeah, so like and that's uh, because there's some sort of inversion that yeah. happened? Yeah. So this is, uh, it's quite common to see uh, chromosome inversion events happen. They happen quite frequently. Uh, what's unusual to see is typically when you look at even like, a, so quantiflagellates and sponges, for instance, look like this, like a total mess. Typically, you only see this like in bacterial species that are closely related. Uh, it's very unusual to see in eukaryotes. And the PFM domain, that's the mating type? The, P, the PTF domain, the, the red thing? Uh, yeah, this, uh, the MTF. The MTF, yep. So that uh, determines sex type. And so basically the conclusion from this, and if we just count raw genes, the difference between the two genomes is essentially anywhere from 10 to 50 genes depending on how you set your standards for what's different. So this means you can go from an organism like Clamnomonas to something like Volvox with about 50 genetic changes, and of those, it's not entirely clear which ones are the most important or due to drift. So again, why, sorry, why do you say 50? 
But uh, why the number 50? Do you have some calculation? Or? Oh, so it depends on how you deal with uh, gene duplication events. Uh, so if you just look at, is there a PFAM domain that's found in the same two organisms? I think the difference is eight genes that are different. But if you deal with the issue that there's like ECM gene expansion in Volvox, then it's closer to 50. And it also depends on how stringent you are with calling your orthologs. So if you say that you know they have to be nearly 90% identical, that number, the number of differences goes up. If you say that they can just be orthologs if they're mutual best blast hits, then your number goes way down that are different. But there are presumably genes in one that are not present at all in the other as well. So is that, is that is included somehow? Or yep, so that's the eight number. There's about eight genes. That's all? Yep, not including the metatype locus. So I'll get to that in a minute because okay. that's a bit more of a mess. All right. Thank you. So more or less eight genes to go from Premiumonas right to Volvox right? Yep. And so what our working model is, is that instead of having to come up with new genes to make a transition, instead what you do is you take existing genes within the genome and co-opt their function into new functions as you increase organismal complexity. And we'll show some evidence for why this might be true. Okay, so there's two types of multicellularity. Uh, one is the uh, dictostelium model of how multicellular evolution might have happened, which is individuals in the environment respond to stress. They collect into some sort of multicellular aggregate that then goes on to do some sort of complex development. Uh, there's also this idea that most organisms seem to do because it seems to be simpler where uh, normally this cell would just divide in half and the two daughter cells would break apart. Instead, this is also how multicellular in the bulbocene algae work is that the uh, mother cell undergoes cell division and instead of these daughter cells breaking apart, they stay together into a group of cells that stay stuck together and coordinate. So again, you see this in dictostelium and slime molds. Uh, this is generally thought to be a special case of multicellular evolution. As I talked about in the uh, main conference, we actually have some evidence that Chlamydomonas does this as well. Uh, I'll talk about that later if you'd like, if we have time. But uh, for, at least for today's talk, I won't talk about this too much. However, this is, seems to be the solution that's favored by most organisms, primarily because when you undergo cell division, it's probably an easier evolutionary step to just stick to your uh, mitotic or meiotic daughter cell or products than it is to evolve complex uh, signaling mechanisms to gather individuals from the environment. And so when you look at this transition from Chlamydomonas to Gonium, and then you look also at Dave Kirk's 12 steps, Half of the six steps that are required to go from Chlamydomonas to Gonium involve changes to the cell division program, uh, most notably incomplete cytokinesis, as I've been talking about, and then this idea of genetic control of cell number, which may or may not actually exist, as I'll talk about in a second. So this really, when we were initially starting to devise how to come about approaching this idea of how unicells transition to colonial multicellularity, uh, the fact that the cell cycle was such a um, overarching theme of this, the transitional steps, this really focused our attention on some certain ideas of how to get at the genes that might be important for this transition. So the gonium picture that you keep showing um, is, looks like it's sort of squashed. It, it, it again looks like it's square. Is that an illusion or because it's between cover slips? Or no, so gonium actually is a sheet of cells. It is literally a sheet of cells. Yeah, and it's kind of a almost a hemisphere. Okay. And then, so yeah. Bent plate. Yeah. Yep. And so that thing has to that you know that sheet of cells 
um, has its flagella sticking out and then does the breaststroke yeah. to swim towards light. It's a very uh, hydrodynamically unfavored. Yeah, uh, it's, it seems very strange. And, and then as, it, as you get more and more complicated, can you imagine the shell closing to make a sphere eventually? Or? That's kind of the idea. That seems to be coming from Ray Goldstein's work, is that that, that becomes more hydrodynamically favored to form a sphere as quickly as possible. I don't know why gonium escaped that pressure, but they are definitely a sheet. Okay, so the cell cycle in the vulvocene algae is a little bit different than the cell cycle that most of us are probably familiar with. And basically what the difference is, is that these algae, because they're photosynthetic, tend to time their growth or their G1 phase with the availability of light, and they tend to time their division cycle with the dark. This turns out to be advantageous because you can do photosynthesis, and then at night, when you can't do photosynthesis, you can undergo your cell division program. Uh, these algae also sink to the bottom of either the flask or the pond, such that they can essentially be um, outside of the window of predation is the idea, because their flagella, their basal bodies are used for both their flagella and to divide. And so what this means is that instead of just growing twofold, dividing, growing twofold and dividing, these algae do what's called multiple fission. So they grow significantly during the daylight. And so you can see this microscopically. So this is, for instance, Chlamydomonas. This rule also applies to both gonium and volvox. So during the early into the uh, cell cycle or the light cycle, the cells are quite small. Um, you can see that by the size of their flagella. By about uh, early in G1, by mid G1, they've essentially doubled, tripled or quadrupled their cell size. So again, it's hard to see the flagella in these types of screens, but their flagella are the same size, but their cell size has increased markedly. Same number of flagella, just two? Or? Yep, always two. And so by the time you get ready, or by the time the end of the, the daylight is available, so either 14 to 16 hours into the cell cycle, again, if you could see the flagella very clearly, um, you would be able to see that the flagella are the same size, but the cell size is massively increased. Uh, typically, in an experimental regimen that we do in the lab, we see about 10 to 12-fold growth during a 14-hour day cycle. Can the, the cell cycle itself be modulated by, say, incrementally shortening the days or lengthening the days? Exactly. So if you grow these things in minimal media, you can stop the day cycle at 14 hours, 12 hours, so on and so forth, and the number of cell divisions is the only thing that changes. Uh, this thing right there? That's uh, their pyranoid. It's a crystal of rubisco. So basically, all plants are limited in their ability to fix CO2. So what they do is they form a crystalline of it towards the center of their chloroplast so they can channel CO2 to it. So then when it goes through this uh, division phase, it has to go through N, uh, and I'll get to this, what N means here in a second, uh, rapid divisions. So essentially within about one to two hours, these cells will go through these rounds of multiple fission where they divide multiple times to bring it back down to the proper daughter cell size. It's just a single nucleus though at the end of the G1 phase. Yep, so single nucleus, and then this divides once, twice, three times, and so on and so forth. There's a couple key features of this division cycle that are um, important. Uh, there's been this concept of commitment. Essentially what commitment means in the terms of the vulvacine algae is that the cells have grown at least uh, big enough to divide once. This is approximately twice in cell size. Uh, it's really difficult to accurately quantitate this uh, on an individual cell basis in large quantities, so we don't know exactly how the commitment uh, cell sizer works. Uh, 
uh, or if it even really truly exists or not. But this one up here is actually the really important one. So there's actually a molecular mechanism that I'll get to in a second. But essentially, this cell has gotten to some cell size. There's actually a mechanism in this cell that measures uh, how big the cell is and then determines how many times it needs to divide. And how this works essentially is this cell is big. It can divide at least once. So it goes through one round of SM phase. Then the two daughter products in that are measured. They're either big or not, and so they go through another round of SM phase, and so on and so forth. And SNM are synthesis and mitosis. Yep, exactly. <clears throat> and so why this is all important is because this cell cycle called multiple fission is actually conserved across all the bulbocene algae. So we'll get to various aspects of this life cycle. Uh, but uh, in Chlamydomonas, this is essentially what I just showed you in a more simplified form. Uh, daughter cells get big, big cells divide multiple times, and chlamydomonas, these cells break apart. To get to gonium, you essentially have the same thing. You have a daughter colony. Each of these cells within the colony divides, and then each of the cells within this mitotic product then stay together to form a new colony. Uh, we'll leave aside the sex cycle for a moment. We'll get to that towards the uh, end of the talk when I talk about the mating loci. The important thing is, so again, this is just modulation of multiple fission, uh, and this is a common theme because in Volvox, which has a much more complicated life cycle, where you have essentially an adult spheroid, so this is the vegetative cycle right here. This process right here, called, it's called cleavage in the literature, but this process right here is no different than multiple fission. The only difference is that in this case, the somatic cells, which are on the outside, do not undergo cell division, whereas the uh, the gonidial cells, which are inside the spheroid, are the ones that undergo multiple fission. Again, this is exactly like Chlamydomonas. Um, you can actually modulate the number of cell divisions that go on within these, and hence the size of the resultant spheroid, simply by modulating the conditions of light and nutrients. This right here is the Volvox, and this is actually even the Carteri-specific version of development. So Carteri has developed then a modification to multiple fission where then these cells go through an asymmetric cell division and lead to the development of daughter spheroids. They've also, they've got a problem that when they do this, uh, it's a little bit technical as to why this happens, but cell division happens such that their flagella are on the inside. So these things need to flip inside out so you can get a new spheroid with the flagella pointing in the wrong, or pointing in the correct direction. And then these daughter spheroids grow and then break out of the mother spheroid. And again, I'll get to the sexual cycle in a few minutes. But the other thing to note about Volvox is the process of differentiation of these gonidial cells into eggs or sperm is also a modification to multiple fission. And uh, the reason we know that is because of some genetic work that, or some genomic work that we've done. And I'll get to the specifics of this at the end of the talk. One of the 12 steps was something like uh, controlling the number of cells or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so, so if you look inside a Volvox, the daughter cells inside are, the, 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 or the small spheres are different sizes, right? Generally, at least the pictures I've seen, you have a distribution of sizes. Yeah. But if I watch, say, one of them, will its daughter cells be the same size? I guess that's what I'm, ask, what I'm asking is, uh, is this number, even though there's a distribution at any time, is this number highly regulated? in a lineage kind of? No, so the distribution is actually regulated purely by how big the, the gonidial cell grows. Okay, so 
So if all the gonadal cells grew exactly the same amount, yeah. all the daughter spheroids would be exactly the same amount. In practice, because it's a spheroid, not all the gonadal cells have access to the same light and nutrients, mostly light. Well, so I guess another, way, if you look at just the, just the gonium, um, it, uh, you draw this thing where uh, it's a little, it's a little colony, and then it uh, right here. So the, the 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 split between the multiple fission into the daughter colonies, uh, the way you've drawn it is always four. <coughs> is is that so? I guess that the question is: is that uh, fission process, or so that that the, the daughter colonies, the breaking of the daughter colonies, is that what is being controlled? I mean, will they always be the same number? Nope. Uh, it's again the same thing. So. And you can do this experimentally. So if you grow a gonium cell, so we can also grow this synchronously. So if you grow it for four hours, say, yeah. and then shift it to the dark so that it'll divide. Right. Uh, when it divides, it'll divide in, in half, uh -huh. and you'll actually get unicells. Okay. If you grow it for two hours longer, it'll divide twice, and you'll get four-celled colonies on average. And these are all, always distributions, because it's based on individual cells and how big they got. If you grow it even longer, it'll divide an additional round. You'll get eight cells in 16 and so on and so forth. So the number of daughter colonies you get just comes from the total number of divisions? Yep, and how big they grew. And plus and minus is just a convention for referring to mating types? Yep, exactly. One of the interesting things that's actually not very well explored is what happens is, is if this cell doesn't grow big enough to divide, they slip into what is essentially a G0 state. So they'll kind of, they'll wait for at least a day. We don't know the, how long they will wait, but these cells, if they don't grow big enough, they will just basically wait for another daylight period. And if they grow big enough, then they'll divide. Christoph? In, in spheres, when you go uh, one slide ahead, there you have these spheres, and then you set that this is inversion. So are these spheres already, these small, I don't know how you call them, in the lower state? These right here? So yeah, are these spheres? So how does does this inversion? Is there some breaking up of the sphere and then you turn it around, or how does it? Exactly. It's just like taking a. Uh, it's almost like taking a tennis ball and cutting a hole in it and flipping it inside out. Okay. Like in in Volvox, what happens is a very small little break happens, and then a molecular process actually inverts it. Is it known what forces drive that inversion? Yeah. So it's done by a kinesin which is a motor protein. Uh, the actual specifics of that molecular mechanism are not particularly well understood, so we know what the gene identity that regulates it is. Uh, so it's, a, again, a kinesin. Uh, Microtubules involved and stuff like that? Uh, so, yeah, that would be the implication. Okay, so then the question is, and that we've been kind of walking around, is how do these cells measure their cell size? So we actually know quite a bit about this from Clamdomonas, and we're transitioning our knowledge to gonium quite rapidly in my lab right now. And so what we've known for about uh, almost 12 years now is that how this Clamdomonas cell determines its division pattern is basically there is a cell size signal that at the moment is not entirely well understood. Uh, we have some ideas from some work that's being done in my uh, postdoc lab by a different uh, researcher. But essentially, uh, this abstract idea of a cell size signal gets inputted into these cyclins and CDKs. Cyclins and CDKs are classical cell cycle activators that are conserved amongst all eukaryotes and also in things like yeast. Uh, these are eukaryote-type uh, cell cycle activators. And these cell cycle activators act, act by 
regulating a key cell cycle repressor. Um, I'll refer to it either as MAP3, which is its gene name, or more generally, uh, retinoblastoma. And this gene right here is found in almost all eukaryotes, with the exception of Cerevisiae, which actually has, does not have an RB protein, but has an unrelated protein that has the same function. And how this thing works is that this is a cell repressor. And what this does is this sits on top of a transcription factor of E2F and DP. Uh, this simply means that it's a dimerization partner. This does all the, the action. This actually sits on the DNA. And so how this works is that when this activates the cell cycle, this phosphorylates MAP3RB. This derepress, changing its conformation of how it's bound to this <coughs> thing, and then leads to gene transcription, which in theory should lead to cell division. And so as far as we know, this is the, and we've done extensive work at looking at this, this is the only mechanism that's at play for regulating uh, whether, and so how this works then is that each time it goes through a round of S and M phase, the cell size is measured again. This path is either, pathway is either activated to regulate another cell division entry, or if the cells are small, they no longer can enter S and M phase, this pathway gets turned off and cell division gets turned off. And so we know this is a, uh, does work in Chlamydomonas for sure. Um, as far as we can tell, and as I'll show some data for in a few seconds, this pathway is completely uh, the same in Gonium as well. And so bottom line, just to kind of summarize everything I've been telling you, as far as we can tell in all the Bulbacales, uh, cell growth and division are uncoupled. And this is kind of one of the interesting consequences of this. Uh, the reproductive output of these organisms is determined simply by their cell size, or essentially how much they can grow during a cell cycle. Uh, as far as we know, there's no other mechanisms that are, are regulating reproductive output because all these organisms seem to enter a quiescent state if they're not able to divide for some number of days that's more than one. So let's look a little bit more closely at this molecular mechanism of how the RB pathway works. So again, I told you that this MAP3 protein actually sits on top of DP and E2F. So before the cells are entering the cell cycle, this is your, uh, a cartoon of the DNA. This MAP3 protein actually sits on top of E2F and DP and keeps a gene that's downstream of this off. Uh, for various reasons, we have reason to believe that there's actually co-repressors and co-activators that we don't know their identity yet. And so then when this thing switches then to an activation complex, what happens is those upstreams, uh, cyclin CDKs, phosphorylate MAP3, uh, again, we believe there's a, a co-activator at play here that we haven't identified yet. So this whole thing is sitting on top of the DNA, and by switching to an activator complex, if there's a gene downstream of this, it'll allow the locus-specific regulation of genes required for things like S phase, mitosis, transcription, uh, so on and so forth for activating the cell cycle. That's a phosphorylation switch for RB. Multiple phosphorylation turns it into an activator? Yep. Uh, one of the, the more finer points of how RB proteins work is a single phosphorylation event actually doesn't do it because these proteins are actually phosphorylated even during pre-commitment. Uh, this protein actually acts as an, uh, essentially an integrator of signals. So in the case of the bulbous analogy, it's quite simple because it's just cell size. And things like metazoans, there can be hundreds of signals being perceived by RB. And it's not entirely clear how these phosphorylation patterns influence cell cycle entry, but there is uh, definitely, it does, the, the patterning and the number are important for entry. So what's nice about this entire system is that because this is the only pathway that we know of that uh, responds to cell, to cell size, and then the only pathway that then regulates entry into cytokinesis, 
What this suggests is that the RB pathway itself has actually evolved in gonium to promote the incomplete cytokinesis that leads to multicellular evolution. So the question that we're really interested in is how does, our, how does the RB uh, pathway in the vulvicales, how has it evolved? And we'll talk about this in two contexts. We'll talk about it in gonium, and then we'll talk about a really interesting uh, aspect of the RB pathway in vulvox at the end of the talk. So basically what we decided to do is because there's not genomic information for any of the uh, vulvicales between chlamydomotis and vulvoxes, we have a genome project going on. Uh, we're doing several different uh, approaches to getting high quality uh, draft genomes as well as uh, being able to look at the genes important for each of the steps. Uh, we're doing essentially a pretty standard Illumina de novo uh, way of creating a genome. We're also collaborating with a company that has developed a technique for creating physical maps of these, uh, of these genomes to help put together these relatively short contigs into larger uh, contigs. And one of the key aspects of the project that we're doing is we're interested in the genes that are responsible for the transition. So what we're doing is we're actually sequencing populations uh, of these organisms at each of the different steps such that we can subtract out population level variation from those that might be responsible for transition level variation. Um, we're also doing life cycle transcriptome sequencing. I'll talk about this here in a second. And then uh, one of the interesting things about the vulvicales is the small RNAs which regulate gene expression don't seem to be um, homologous between these species. Uh, so we're addressing this issue by sequencing all the small RNAs in these organisms to make sure that that is indeed true because that was just derived computationally. How, how big do they, do they have to get in order to divide? I guess you've got a picture of scale part there now. I'm just wondering what the size scale is. Oh, for? For, for the individual chlamydomonas or any of the individual cells, how, what is the size scale at which they will divide? So in a chlamydomonas cell, um, a daughter cell is 60 cubic microns. They have to get to about 120 to 130 cubic microns. So essentially doubled in size. They have to lower in size to go to one division and lower in size to go to two divisions. Sure. I just think of the physical size scale and what goes on with those length scales. Yep. So in, in diameter, they, like, if they, you, you can think to the tube, so if you have like 10 microns on diameter, they will go to 20 microns after 16 hours growing and then go through four divisions to make 16 cells. Yep. The part that's really unclear at the moment is what is the discrete change between the two different levels. Uh, we don't understand that very well just because we have not, we measure these on the pot, so you measure like 10 to the 6 cells through essentially a, a, an instrument that can measure the average population, but you can't actually measure individual cells going through the process. So that at the moment that's really poorly understood. Someday we'll hopefully get to that. So how, how are they supposed to measure the cell size exactly? Uh, because it, they're not measuring the volume, they are measuring the number of proteins of a certain type. Uh, so the molecular mechanism is unknown. Essentially, it has to deal with uh, a protein that's made once per cell cycle, so it's only made during SM phase. And it's made proportional, so it's made just before the cells enter SM phase. And it's made proportional to the, um, or sorry, it's made in the daughter cell phase after SM phase. It's only made once per cell cycle at the end of SM phase. And it's made proportional to the cell size. And then it's never made again during the entire cell cycle. And then that protein gets diluted, and its ratio to a activator then changes at some point that allows it to switch over. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And that's actually what's measured. Can you manipulate these proteins? Can you add more to the protein? And mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. So you can you can do exactly what you're saying. It was found in a mutant screen. You can directly manipulate the ratio of the activator versus the the repressor that's made once per cell cycle. Uh huh. And this this is new. It's not published yet. It's in progress. Okay. Wow. So I won't say too many more details on something that's being videotaped, but there is a postdoc that is working out the molecular mechanism in quite some detail. It's actually kind of cool. Why is the uh, Astra, f for many, less green than the others? Uh, this has to deal with these. Uh, these pictures were taken by multiple investigators, and some people are really good at taking pictures, and others are not. <laughs> All right. <coughs> In fact, I think the Strefamini was. Uh, there's a really cool thing that's this Japanese group that takes pictures of all these protists. I think it's uh, like protist images or something like that. And I think that's where that one might have come from. Okay, so the genomes we're sequencing are all these that are colored. So the blue ones, so Reinhardt, so Clamidomus Reinhardt and Volvox cargare have been done or are now published. Uh, Gonia pectorale is in progress. I'll talk about that today. We have Clutorhinus RA in progress as well, which is this organism right here, which has both germ soma and also has cell type specification. Uh, we have this, the Illumina part done, but we haven't actually done anything useful with it. Why, why did you choose uh, Stari? Is there any specific reason? Because it's one of the few strains where we have population level data, or we have populations available to us. Uh, there's why a, not California? Uh, we don't have populations for those. So for Starry, we have, I think, six isolates that we can use for this. So all these in colored are being done by various groups uh, under the umbrella of the Genome Project. Uh, the ones that you, you can see that my lab is most interested in is sequencing these organisms right around here at the base of the complexity tree. Uh, one of my colleagues in Japan is really interested in how sex evolved in more detail. So he's doing some of these organisms that have uh, germ soma gain and loss as well. And in particular, he's doing these two right here, uterina, which is uh, right here, which is basically a size-expanded ball of pandorina, and yamagishiella, which has a uh, loss of germ soma. So those are the, the ones we're doing. Uh, today, I'll just talk about pectorale because that's the one that we actually have uh, significant progress made on, and the rest are in various levels of progress. So for the gonium genome, we have a pretty good genome sequence at the moment. We're doing a final scaffolding uh, with the bio-nano based approach that I talked about a few minutes ago. Uh, we're down to about 2,400 scaffolds. Uh, this is always the important thing. It's called your N50. <coughs> this tells you the size of the average contig within your genome. So we have 1.3 megabase pair. So that's pretty good size for a completely Illumina de novo based mechanism or uh, assembly. And uh, we're uh, we were hoping to have the data before this talk, but uh, we are working with BioNano to get this uh, increased significantly. We think we have it increased into full chromosomes, but we're dealing with some minor bioinformatics issues to confirm that that is indeed true. Uh, this is the important thing right here. Uh, so when the Volvox genome was published, uh, essentially 80% of the genes could be definitively uh, placed into sets of high-quality orthologs. We've now increased this to 88% before I gave this talk. We're getting closer to about 94% in the work I've done in the last week or so. What does high-quality mean? This means that we know uh, one of the issues we run into when you do these assemblies is you have these really small contigs that are trailing off and you're like they're 1 kb. 
And it's not always entirely clear if those are actually in your genome or if they're due to library contaminants. And so most of these are turning out to be library contaminants. But what does high quality mean? What's your definition of high quality here? So that means that we have an actual gene model where you have, so we have several qualities. So you have a gene model that you can actually do with evidence base, so with RNA-seq data that actually shows it's being expressed. And that you actually know that, uh, so when you sequence these things, you oftentimes end up with, say, a short scaffold and either a bunch of unknown sequence. And so like you may get one exon. And we throw all that out because we don't know if this is a misassembly or if this exon was elsewhere. Um, we also throw out uh, anything that's got low uh, base quality, so low FRED scores. Yeah, but when you keep something and you call it a high quality orphalon, what's the criteria for that? Are you doing a phylogenetic analysis on each predicted gene model? Yes, yes. So yeah, we, we take every gene and every genome, we do full phylogenies on them to develop the phylogeny. And that's what we call as high quality, as long as it meets the minimum criteria to be run through the analysis. If that makes sense. And as these... Uh, and also, too, as you do more and more scaffolding and sequencing, the amount of crap, the stuff that doesn't assemble or is from unknown origin goes down. And so that's why this keeps going up as we keep doing more and more work on it. Okay, so from the, uh, from the Volvox genome, we actually knew a couple things were going on with the cell cycle that uh, obviously was not a surprise. And one of the things that was found in the genome sequencing of Volvox was that this family of cyclin D1s up here were known to have expanded in Volvox. So basically these are those cyclins that activate the cell cycle. For all of the cyclins that were known at the time of the Volvox genome sequencing, there's basically a one-to-one -one ortholog. So there is a primary version of cyclin A, of A1, a Volvox version. B1, B1, so on and so forth. Except for this family of D1s right here, which had an expanded family. And so the idea was Volvox has four cell types, four cyclins, there you go. End of the story. And these numbers, like 94, are divergence times? Or? That's the uh, bootstrap quality. Okay, that's just the yep, so it's a 94%. Can't get bigger than 100? Yep, it's essentially a probability. Can you repeat why, why you, you said it makes sense that you have four? That was the original hypothesis. Can you repeat it, sorry? Oh, there was, uh, so there's four cell types in Volvox, four cyclins. So the original idea was that each cyclone regulates a cell type differentiation. Yep, exactly. So there's a germ cell yeah, plus the male and female gametes. The other reason the cyclone D1s fit nicely into a story like that is uh, from work that uh, we're working on publishing right now, uh, the cyclone D1 family is known to be the key cell cycle activator, the RB pathway that's involved in cell size whereas all these other cyclins are involved essentially in basal uh, cell cycle regulation processes. Uh, it's a slightly complex story as to why that's true, but uh, this turns out to be true that there's uh, key regulators of the actual entry of cell cycle in all organisms, and cyclin D1s are often those. So again, as I just said, there's four cell types in Volvox, so that was thought to be that each one regulated a different cell type. Uh, the complication came when we uh, rebuilt the Volvox model, or vol rebuilt parts of the Volvox genome, and then looked at the gonium genome. And what we found is that much of the cyclin D1 expansion actually happened in gonium, which does not have four cell types. Again, these are bootstrap supports. 
uh, this tree has gotten a little more complicated because some of the Volvox cyclin D1s actually were not properly annotated in the original genome. So we're working on improving these models. Uh, they, they essentially don't express very well, so it's hard to determine exactly what the gene model looks like. But this was a, a big change because essentially what this is showing is that these cyclin D1s expanded at the time of the transition from Clamdomonas to Gonium. And uh, we know that, uh, so the, phyl the phylogenetic tree was a little unclear. You can see there's not very much bootstrap down here support. And why it was unclear is because uh, this, the way that this tree is structured would imp imply that this actually happened twice independently. But we believe this is not the case and due to gene model um, annotation problems at the moment because of how these genes are actually ordered on the genome. So in Clamdomonas, the cyclin D1 is on uh, scaffold 26. Uh, in Gonium pectorale and in Volvox, these cyclin D1s are actually arranged into a tandem duplication array. And so in both Gonium and Volvox, these tandem duplications are nearly identical. Uh, the issue that we're dealing with right now is essentially uh, this section right here. Uh, the sequence quality goes down for some reason. And so actually the fourth cyclin D1 that's known to be in Volvox actually happens to be in that section of really poor quality sequence. And so we actually think that there's only uh, three cyclin D1s in Volvox as well. So again, because these are tandemly duplicated and because the structure of this looks identical and the downstream genes are identical, we think that this actually happened during the transition from uh, Clavnomonas to Gonium. And so I've kind of alluded to this, um, all the other cell cycle regulator genes, so for instance, MAP3 or the RB protein, E2F and DP, all are single orthologs within the uh, group of organisms. So there's been no other changes to these um, at all. And so we thought there might actually be something up with RB, and that comes from data that we have from the actual sequencing of the RB gene. And one of the interesting things we noted is that Clavnomonas has an RB structure that's like this. Uh, these parts that are not colored are found in all, all RB proteins and all taxa. The one thing that varies between all RB proteins is this, it's called a linker domain. And this is where the cyclin-dependent kinases phosphorylate the protein and then regulate its activity. And so one of the things we knew from Volvox to Clammy is that the linker domain in Volvox had shrunk quite a bit. But uh, the interesting thing about Gonium is that its linker domain is actually more Volvox-like than it is Clamnomonas-like. The sequence is different and the length is different than Clamnomonas? Yep, so this linker domain is, uh, if I remember right, it's like almost six times as big. And, and it's not just a six times duplication of the L1 domain and the other guys? No, it's got a, a large insertion of uh, disordered sequence. So you recognize the other, the, the blue and purple L1 domains in it, but then it also has other stuff. Yep, yep. Um, I'll show that towards the end of the talk. Essentially what you can see is there's like a, a big section right here that's, oh, actually I'll ignore that for the second. There's a section like right here that's really well conserved amongst all of them, and a section about right there that's really well conserved. And then essentially Clammy's got a huge insertion of some disordered sequence in it. Uh, this is also thought to be a loop, so these things kind of collapse down to sit on top of E2F, and so this is thought to be a loop that sticks out, that's inaccessible to the CDKs. So the, note, the, the RB is retinoblastoma? Yep. That's just a vestige of where it was first found? Yeah, so it's found in uh, retinoblastoma tumors. It's also, uh, it's one of the most commonly mutated. So if you get cancer, you're going to be RB minus at some point in, that, in those tumor lines. Uh, that has implications where we have a study now to see if we can correlate this to cancer, but uh, I won't talk about that today. 
it turns out, as I'll show in a second, uh, these algae get cancer just like people do. So what we're doing is we're trying to figure out then how the RB pathway works in these two organisms, or how the cell cycle works in these two organisms, so between Chlamydomonas and Gonium. You've seen a couple versions of this now. But essentially what we're doing is because we can synchronize these cell cycles and because they have very distinctive biological time points within the cell cycle that we can define, what we're doing is we're sequencing the uh, transcriptome or what the total RNA level looks like at each of the cell cycle time points. So key time points like late G1 before these cells enter cytokinesis. Uh, most importantly is the actual cytokinesis process itself and then also uh, the production of daughter cells. Um, I won't talk about this today, uh, but uh, gonium has this curious aspect of its biology where it has to produce unicellular gametes, so these multicellular uh, colonies have to break down into unicellular gametes. So we're also sequencing uh, stages in gametogenesis to see if any of the, uh, what genes might be coming on to dissolve the colonies. But for the moment, we'll focus on this aspect where we're trying to understand what's different about the transcriptional program that regulates cytokinesis and gonium compared to chlamydomonas. So we've done this now. Uh, so one of the problems with doing these types of approaches is you essentially generate lists of genes. And in a second, I'll get to how we've approached that issue. And so again, so Chlamydomonas and Gonium differ by very few genes. Uh, one of the things we noted in the transcriptomes of Clammy and Gonium during uh, mitosis, for instance, is there's about 22 genes that are up or down regulated during mitosis. I'm sorry? We, we set it on a probability score. So we do it with the, um, we do three biological replicas, and then we say whether or not that the probability of that difference being real is. No matter what the difference is, the difference could be tenfold, could be yep. twofold. So we've tried to get rid of the fold is a, can be a little, it can trick you. Because if you go from like zero to one, that's, yeah, that doesn't really tell you anything. And in three biological replicas. We've also, uh, on the technical side of this, uh, one of the things we're doing too is these are not just like, we don't just take one population of cells at one time point. We actually take hourly time points and we pool them. So we know that uh, if you end up having something that was up in like one sample only at a time, you can say that that one is either an outlier or not. Okay, so 2,200 genes are up or down regulated during cytokinesis. Uh, this is the really, uh, to me, the really interesting part of this is that uh, gonium has 342 genes that are upregulated during mitosis that are not cell cycle regulated in Chlamydomonas at all. So, if you look at a uh, popular or look at RNA from cells that were uh, synchronized to SM phase, uh, gonium has 342 genes that are up. Um, more interestingly, is that Gonium has 546 genes that are down during cytokinesis. And the interesting thing about these is uh, a significant portion of those that have annotations have functions in actually uh, regulating the fission process itself. And so from these data, we actually knew quite early that the mitotic program of gonium and chlamydomonas are quite different despite the fact that uh, these two organisms have the same gene content, which is why gene content may not have been telling us um, anything functionally. Uh, one of the other things you can do too is you can measure the evolutionary rates of these by measuring whether or not there's a non-synonymous or a synonymous uh, substitution being placed in the message as the organisms are transitioning. Um, we also knew from this analysis that 
Um, 44 genes are undergoing positive selection in gonium compared to chlamydomonas, and additional six genes are undergoing positive selection in gonium compared to fulvox. Uh, this is kind of a bit of a surprise because, and again, this is outside the mating type locus because the mating type locus is uh, a bit more of a challenge to deal with these analyses. And so again, this is pointing to the direction that some sort of upstream positive regulator, or some sort of upstream regulator, rather, is being co-opted to regulate the differences in gene expression during cytokinesis. You know what alignment tool you used to do that evolutionary analysis? Uh, we use mostly muscle to do this. Uh, for some of the more difficult to um, align ones, we use a hybrid muscle and cholesterol W approach, things that have large insertions. That's because the predictions of positive selection can change a lot depending on Yeah, and we also take the best hit from the three different algorithms. So there's like uh, Niels, Gabor, and a couple others. We also take the um, all three into consideration. Niels doing it also with something like Frank that takes evolutionary information into account. Yeah, that's a good idea. Because there's a lot of them that hang out like right at just below one, and we don't know if those are real or not. That's, oh, we'll give that a try. That's easy to do. So the reason why you haven't seen any pictures or any annotations or anything like that is essentially what those experiments do is they generate these gene lists. And at least from my mind, it's informative to do these gene lists, but they don't really tell you what's going on. And so what we've done is we, we do the gene list uh, as basically a way to guide where our next experiments are gonna go. And so what we do then is we take these gene lists to guide then essentially functional experiments. And one of the really cool things about this system is that we can do two different approaches towards understanding because these two organisms are so closely related. So we can do things like transgenomic gain of function. So essentially what we can do is we can take genes out of gonium, we can put them into chlamydomonas and ask if they cause a transition to gonium. And then we can also do experiments where we can take a gene of interest from gonium, knock down its function by RNAi, and see if we get a loss of function, thus implicating these genes in the actual process itself of multiple evolution. So again, getting away from gene lists, since they don't really, at least in my mind, tell us a whole lot. So the first thing we did is quite a crude experiment. We just asked a very simple question. So we knew cytokinesis was being reprogrammed. Uh, one of the key things that you would look at are either the cyclins or the CDKs or the integrator itself or the RB protein. And so what we did is we took advantage of the fact is that we have a null allele for the RB gene in chlamydomonas. And we asked if we could complement it with the gonium gene and ask what happens. So for those of you that are molecular biologists, this is important. Essentially what we've done is we've taken a construct that we've published on previously that perfectly complements the MAT3 null allele that drives the expression of a genomic MAT3 allele. Uh, this has been modified with an epitope tag so we can uh, do biochemical experiments, but it's got its native promoter, native terminator. Uh, we essentially swapped this with the gonium version of the MAT3 so it's being driven by its native promoters and still has the tag on it. And again, we've shown experimentally that this tag doesn't interfere with its, fun with its function as far as we can tell. How so, long it, How long is a three prime UTR? I'm just curious. Uh, in, oh, the three prime UTR in this, I think it's two KB. So 
So uh, then what we did is, again, this is a, this transgenomic gain-of-function idea. So we have a MAP3 mutant. Uh, because it's defective in its cell size pathway and has uncontrolled cell division, it's got a small, small cell size. So we asked whether or not putting the gonium gene in there would complement either the cell size defect, like the chlamydomonas gene does, or if it would cause an incomplete cytokinesis defect. So this is this MAP3 mutant right here. Um, it's small, sickly. In this case, the green does matter, Dave. Because uh, it was taken on a, a normalized microscope. Um, you'll see in a second when the wild type pops up. Um, when you do just a, a culture counter profile of this where we can measure the cell size versus the cell number, um, this is the MAP3 mutant right here, so it does have a small cell size. Um, we can complement this again with the chlamydomonas version of the protein, which has identical cell size to the wild type. And this progresses through, or through the cell cycle at the same rate at which does the wild type. So as far as we can tell, these tags don't cause any defects and also complement the cell size. So when we created this uh, gonium-complemented version of the strain, we knew something was up initially because, again, this is a log scale as well, just so you're aware. We noticed that the gonium strains were significantly larger when we were screening through the transformants. And uh, these kind of patterned out quite nicely into multiples. And sure enough, I wouldn't be telling you about this if it wasn't cool. And so what happens is these are two independent uh, strains that express the gonium MAP3 gene. And so basically what happens is these cells do not complete cytokinesis, and they transition into clusters of cells that are either 2, 4, or 8, or 16. And then this is the uh, complemented strain down here, so you can see that the, uh, the uh, paleness of the strain is complemented by the presence of the native gene. Do you know what holds them together in, in complete cytokinesis? What molecules? I mean, is it just cell cell adhesions like adherins? Like in other... So we don't have cadherins in, in algae. Yeah. Uh, what algae do instead is they use cell, cell wall proteins. We presume it's a cell wall proteins. And one of the key facts of why we thought this experiment might work is the ECM of chlamydomonas and gonium are known to be relatively similar to each other on just a crude like EM scale and a biochemical scale. There's also, it's hard to see on the screens, uh, but you can see on the computer, uh, and these cells have it too. Gonium will have an ECM matrix on the outside of it that holds kind of the whole globule together. Um, these cells have that as well. And there's no, uh, it's just cytoplasmic communication in these clusters? Uh, no. Uh, so these, uh, so we have drawn these cytoplasmic bridges in. So gonium does have cytoplasmic bridges. Okay. Um, we really don't know what they do. Uh, there's been a lot of thought out there that they might just be for just general communication. Uh, they might be just a consequence of the incomplete cytokinesis process itself. Their function is really not well understood. And they're also very transient, so they come and they go. And there's a paper that was just published like last Friday that I've been meaning to read that actually does some ultra-structural analysis of when these come and go. Uh, my hunch is that these are probably not terribly important for multicellularity itself, that they're just a consequence of being close together and there being some advantage to share uh, resources mutually. There's no cell wall to get in the way? No, so... Uh, it's just a plasma membrane. Yep, so they do share a cytoplasmic membrane. Um, do you have any idea about this mechanism of this incomplete uh, cytokinesis? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. I don't know if it's right or not, but uh, we're working on that aspect. And for those molecular biologists out there, we have done the Western blots with a 3x HA tag. Uh, this protein is smaller because it's la uh, lacking part of that linker domain. Essentially, the, uh, H the GPMAP3 is expressed at the same levels as wild type in these lines compared to histone H3, which measures your uh, nuclei number. Uh, 
And we do get some variance in the expression level, and the variance in expression does correlate with uh, cell number quite nicely. So this is the model that we're working on right now. So this is exactly what you were asking about. So we have this idea that then these, uh, these are these cyclin D1s uh, and they're cognizant CDK that they bind to, that, the, uh, that these somehow uh, phosphorylate MAP3 in different combinations to regulate uh, entry into cytokinesis differently. And so what we think is happening is that the way that the MAP3 complex is being programmed by these phosphorylations at different genes is changing. So because this linker domain in MAP3 is much smaller, we think that it's either missing or it's CDK sites that this is phosphorylating are different, such that the loci of all the genes that are expressed or that are regulated by MAP3 during, this, uh, during cytokinesis are being programmed differently. Does that make sense? So basically instead of having one gene that causes one function, you have one gene that regulates many functions and how it's programmed at ind individual loci is different due to which of these upstream uh, CDK cyclin complexes okay, can, are present. Can you measure which, which genes are changing if, 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 you, uh, if you use the, um, the Golding version? Can you say that again? Can, can, so if you use the Golding version of the Clubinomonas, can you see which, uh, which genes are going to be we're doing exactly that. Yeah. So we have this. Uh, Those, in some, in some way, some, some downstream genes must change yep. in order to glue themselves together. So we're doing exactly that. And how we're doing that is that 3XHA tag is sticking off of MAP3, and these are stuck to DNA. So what we're doing is we've already done the transcriptome experiment with just this, the synchronized cell cycles. We're also doing a transcriptome in the MAP3 mutant because then we can tell which genes are MAP3 regulated and defective in the, those lines. And then what we've done is, because we have that uh, 3XHA tag on MAP3, um, in previous work I've shown that you can immunoprecipitate these with an antibody uh, quantitatively. So then what we're doing is we're pulling down these complexes bound to DNA, sequencing the DNA that's there, and we're asking which loci are these complexes bound to throughout the cell cycle. So our prediction is, is that some loci that's, or that there are going to be loci that are bound by MAP3 are either not expressing their gene and not switching to the activator complex, or that they're being differentially bound by these complexes and regulated. So yes, we're testing directly that. It's, a, it's probably going to take us about two years to do that because it's a slightly complicated experiment, but we're plowing through the sequencing as quickly as we can. Okay, can you really see some things uh, based on the sequence of MAP3? So I'll tell you, so there's a really funny aspect of these MAP3 sequences. So uh, this sequence that uh, E2F and DP bind to is known. It's conserved across all metazoa. So all metazoan RB E2F complexes bind the same sequence. The thing is, context seems to be really important for these because if you just do like a silly, like a, a reg, reg X expression search for the sequence, it's found everywhere. And it's found equally, so when I was a postdoc, I just did the simple idea, well, we can just search for the sequence and we can do something like they'll be enriched at promoters and maybe not in genes. Uh, that's not true. They're actually found equally as likely within genes, within introns, within promoters. So there's no pattern to where these sequences are found. So there seems to be a context-dependent uh, binding of these things to promoters. And we think it might be these X's and Y's that we know are present but we don't know what they are that are regulating that context-dependent binding to the genome. It's not quite as simple as just here's the sequence bind to it. So am I, I, I am, I, am I wrong if I say that, in, to summarize, uh, 
you just messed up a regulatory change and then that turned a whole set of changes into Exactly. That's exactly our working hypothesis. By a simple co-option of a single gene that regulates cytokinesis and now in a different context because it's been uh, evolutionarily modified and now causes incomplete cytokinesis. And then all the other changes we're seeing are then ancillary to promote fitness of the organism yeah, itself. But it's surprising. It's, uh, it's not like a weird, like you're, I mean, it, it, it seems to be hom homogeneous new individual just by changing this regulatory yeah. It's not like just, it's okay, they, they get stuck together, but there seems to be some whole set of stuff. Yep. The only uh, fitness issue that these MAP3 experiments lack is they don't quite pattern their flagella yeah, properly. Flagella, yeah, for sure. uh, we're not sure why that is. There could be several reasons. One could be that it doesn't have all the upstream cyclin D1s, so it's not properly expressing everything it needs to. It's doing just enough to do incomplete cytokinesis. Uh, that would be my suspicion, is that if we start adding these cyclin D1s into that strain, at some point it'll start looking better. Or the other thing is that we're missing a gene that's either not being expressed properly or there's some, something missing. But if I understand correctly, it's, it's more than just the, uh, the connections you make in, in the rest of the genetic network, it's also context-dependent. It's also the, the rules that, that you're changing. You're changing the, the connections plus the, the yeah, functions. Yep. Exactly. You might have already said this, but have you done a transcriptome analysis on these reprogrammed clans to see how much they look in gene terms? Uh, we haven't. We're doing that right now, or in the next probably six months. Because yeah, that's so. That was uh, you must have been gone when I was explaining this. We're also doing the chip seek too to find out how they throughout the genome. Okay, so I'm going to switch gears for a moment. This is going to unify itself towards the end of the talk, and that's because uh, sex evolution of Volbox actually has a really interesting connection to the RB pathway and to how this evolutionary process that's centered on the RB pathway and the vulvicalis may be happening. So again, we've been looking at this throughout the talk, and again, I've been talking about this in several different contexts. One of the interesting things about the vulvacine lineage is the fact that there are these uh, independent gains and independent losses of germ soma specification. And so because the genomes of these organisms are so similar, the question is, so what's genetically different about these organisms that's uh, causing uh, sex to be so, or to have been gained and lost independently multiple times in, this, in these organisms? So up until now, we've been ignoring this aspect of the mating type loci in these organisms. Again, that's because this is the one aspect of the biology of these organisms that's actually very complicated. And so one of the things that I found as a postdoc that I thought was quite interesting is, so Chlamydomonas has a mating type locus. Uh, these are individual genes in here. Their identity doesn't matter, except for in one second, I'll mention uh, one interesting aspect of this. So Chlamydomonas have mating type loci that are about 200 KB. Um, these are rearranged domains, so these are under linkage disequilibrium, as often occurs in either sex chromosomes or sex loci. Uh, that's part of the fact that they have to remain uh, sex-specific. So in Chlamydomonas, this is known to be 200 KB. There's about uh, 20 to 25 genes, depending on uh, which version of the models you're looking at. Uh, we're getting ready to publish an updated version of this, finally. And then in Volvox, what was really interesting is that when we sequenced the mating type loci of its cognizant species, uh, we've colored these for uh, convenience. So uh, the female, and I had to turn this on its side for the PowerPoint slide, is the same as MT plus, MT minus is the same as male. 
um, if you're like me and like Cassandra, um, I apologize for the fact that we call these male and female. Um, I don't like this naming convention for various reasons. But uh, this is in the literature, so that's how it stays. So one of the really cool so things... Is female because it has, has a bigger uh, chromosome? Or? Oh, no, it has true eggs and sperm. That's usually the, the dividing line. But then when you have tetrahybronide, then you have these funny situations. It implies things that I don't like. I like plus and minus or eight. Much simpler. Which is plus and which is minus? <laughs> Whichever one you uh, sequence first or discover first. Um, ironically, uh, MT minus is the male in this case. Ironic. <laughs> I think it's ironic because well, actually Ursula is one that worked on this very early on, so maybe she was a. Uh, very clever in her choosing. So the uh, uh, sorry, one question. Would you say that so the transition to sperm and egg would would you say that genetically is more complicated than the whole cell the chromosome? I think like you you were saying that eight genes more or less. And it seems here that the mating type kind of evolution seems to be more complicated. Than maybe. Possibly, yeah. It seems that morphological, it seems very, but in a sense, what you're saying is that maybe it's not that complicated. So keep that question in your mind because I'm going to do something really funny. I'm going to tell you about how complicated this is, and I'm going to tell you a funny experiment we did that disproves everything I'm going to tell you. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good test case as to why you have to be really careful when you do comparative genomics. <coughs> and if I don't answer that question, uh, remind me when we get to it about three or four slides from now. So the idea was, well, these things have more complicated sex programs. They have bigger sex loci. Uh, let's call it a day. We publish the paper and be done with it. And I'll tell you some more details about that. Uh, the only thing that's different is that, uh, and again, these are a little bit hard to see, so I'll summarize this. These little boxes right here that are colored, um, you don't need to know what the gene identities are. But basically, Clamdomotus had uh, or has four uh, MT plus sex limited genes and two MT minus sex limited genes. Whereas Volvox had evolved five uh, female uh, sex-specific genes and ten male-specific genes. Um, importantly, these things have one-to-one -one orthologs between them, so everything that's present in Clammy is present in Volvox. There's just additional ones that are present. I'll talk about one of the specific um, sex-limited uh, genes here in just a moment. You know, so from the outset, this you know, made a lot of sense. Uh, one of the things that made this quite a challenge to do, you'll see out here, like this end of the mating type locus, and this one here is not very well assembled. Because these are under linkage disequilibrium, these regions in here are very repeat rich, so this was nearly impossible to, uh, to assemble with just Illumina-based approaches. Uh, to assemble this thing, we had to do a old-school backwalk and linkage map to get this whole thing put together. It was a huge Herculean force by Patrick Ferris, who was at the uh, conference, uh, the multicellularity conference a few weeks ago. And so one of the first things we noticed uh, is that the genes in the Volvox female are actually evolving at a very fast rate. So these, this is just a bar graph. So essentially what this is, is that this is that physical map that you just looked at with all the junk taken away and just consolidated into the individual genes in order. Uh, this is the same thing for Clamidomonas. Everything highlighted in yellow is in the mating type locus. And note the scales on these. So this is you know, several orders of magnitude larger scale. So basically genes between uh, the male and the female are not going under significant amounts of positive selection. So these genes have you know, very modest levels of DN and DS values. Uh, this actually is not that much different than the autosomes, just slightly elevated. 
But in Volvox, what's interesting, uh, this, these are autosomal genes right here. So again, this scale right here would look like Clamdomonas because it would be clear down below what you can see. Uh, but the genes in the mating type locus of both the male and the female of Volvox have really high DN and DS rates. So that means that uh, mutations, and in particular, positive selection is a very significant, uh, very significantly present in all the genes that are found in the mating type locus. The ratio is not going to be What's that? The ratio of DN to DS is not going to be very big. Uh, most of these are positive. Um, I don't have a graph offhand. They'll be over one, but, but they won't be very big. Yeah, that's true. Uh, one of the so this is also saturated as well, so it's hard to tell, uh, especially the uh, anything that's up above uh, here is right. saturated, so you can't actually measure it. And this is only done for the shared genes, not for the sex-limited genes. So what this had suggested was that there was a lot of uh, genetic sexual innovation going on in the mating type loci of Volvox uh, males and females to promote the evolution of eggs and sperm. And this was uh, shown when we did the phylogenetic profiles. Uh, so these are uh, Megariensis and Kawasaki, which are two Carteri population isolates. Again, getting back to this idea where population isolates are really important. Uh, so this is an autosomal gene, PRX1, that's adjacent to the mating type locus. In fact, I think it's just actually right here. So this gene right here is adjacent to the autosomes. Uh, what's, what this shows right here is that basically uh, the genes, oh sorry, this is actually in the mating locus, PRX is, the, it's by population. And PRP4, which is outside the uh, mating type locus, actually uh, the uh, phylogeny of this is such that the male and female versions cluster by strain. And so what this shows is that PRX1, which is in the mating locus, actually shows a profile such that these are now male and female specific is where their evolution is going on. And then outgroup is uh, Clamidomonas reinhardi because this gene is shared with reinhardi. So again, this is all pointing back to uh, sex-specific neofunctionalization of genes that get into the mating type locus. We did a transcriptome-based approach to doing this, to understanding how the expression of these shared genes, and then in a second I'll talk about this down here, of these, of these shared genes is being co-opted into the sexual process. So we have genes such as uh, this one right here, uh, we call it MTF0684 because we don't know what it is, it's an LLR repeat containing protein. Uh, this sort of sexual co-option has been basically uh, sex-induced in female and vegetative-induced in male. Uh, we see those that are then gender limited to whether or not they're either repressed or activated, depending on what they do. And then we also have two genes, so FSI1, and which means sex female sexually induced, that uh, is induced in the females. These are sex limited genes, so these are only found in females. And HMG1, which is kind of interesting because this is a protein that's commonly found to regulate sex in plants, was um, activated in the female. So again, all this suggests that uh, getting into the mating type locus of Volvox causes changes to your, both your expression and your function in the sexual process itself. One of the really interesting things that we uh, noted in the male and female, and I've been implying to with the gonium work, is that the, uh, the isoforms of the MAP3 protein actually are sex-related as well. So in Clamidomonas, the MAP3 protein sits adjacent to the mating type locus, in male and female, it actually has been enveloped into the mating type locus of both female and male. 
So we know that the female version of the Volvox MAT3 looks quite similar to that of Clamidomonas. Uh, there is a significant amount of alternate expression that goes on, we don't, or sorry, alternate splicing that goes on that produces incomplete messages. Uh, we don't know what this means biologically. But the interesting thing was the male version of the protein that still has all the same domains as the female in Clamidomonas, but it has this giant 10 kb intron in the front of the message. In addition to that, there's also several types of alternate uh, splicing that are going on that produce incomplete messages. So again, this uh, tells us that there are sex forms of the RB protein in the uh, sex pathway of Volvox. And so this kind of shows what you were asking about a few minutes ago, Cassandra. So this is that linker domain right here. Basically what this is measuring, this is just a simple line graph of measuring the, uh, uh, the difference between the two proteins. And so we did this a couple different ways. So you can either compare population variants of Chlamydomonas compared to uh, either the male or the female version of the protein. And basically what we knew is that uh, this part of the uh, linker domain is conserved amongst all the Chlamydomonas, it's all the Chlamydomonas species. It's uh, not found in any of the Volvox ergonium species. But one of the interesting things we found is these regions within the linker domain seem to be either male-specific. Uh, this right here is found, that's found in Volvox and Clammy and Gonium. And then again, this is that insertion section right there that's only found in Clamidomonas. There are these regions right here that are either female-specific or male-specific. What is the last two? The, uh, what are those units? They are, uh, you have to think back what that was exactly. I think that's the protein, I can't remember, it's some sort of uh, evolutionary score based on one of the, the scoring matrices for substitutions. And so uh, again, this uh, suggests that these, uh, this right here is the, again the region that are often phosphorylated by CDKs. It also uh, suggested that the C-termini of the RB protein have functionalized uh, differently in male and female. So down here at the C-termini, especially this region right here, is significantly diverged between males and females. So uh, this is all great. So basically we published the paper. The idea was that RB is, because it's a cell cycle regulator, it's regulating the cell cycle differently to produce the two de developmental outcomes of males and females. And uh, so we called it a day because that seemed to make quite a bit of sense. So the interesting thing happened when we did a uh, interesting experiment. So again, the genetic loci of these things are significantly different, again, suggesting that sex in Volvox is more complicated and that there is a differential role of males and females sex determining loci. So in Chlamydomonas, there's this gene that's called mid. It's called minus dominant because if you put it into either the plus or the minus strain, um, it causes the strain to become fully functional as a minus. And so in Clamidomonas, it's necessary and sufficient for gender determination. And the interesting thing we found is that we took the mid-gene from the male, expressed it in the female, despite the fact that the many type loci are different and they have gender-specific proteins. If you do this experiment, this Volvox spheroid produces uh, fully fertile sperm, even though it should be producing eggs exactly what occurs in Chlamydomonas when you put the mid-gene into the minus. Fully mating competent, it's just switched its sex type. Uh, it, it produces the, the, the whole sperm packet? Mm -hmm. Fully fertile and everything. Which is 
So we've been talking about how genetically complicated yeah. the sex pathway might be, that there's gender limitations. Mm. One simple transcription, yeah. putative transcription factor switches sex. So this has really kind of changed the game on as to what's going on with these MT regions. So you know, what are they doing? And I, at this moment, I don't really know what they might be doing because they, it could be things like, could have increases in fertility or some aspect of the actual mating process that it makes it more efficient. Uh, maybe it's a better regulation of the sex cycle itself. But again, this is a, has been a big surprise that you can rewire the sex pathway of Chlamydomonas, which wasn't much of a surprise because its mating type locus wasn't that complicated. But why does Volvox have these giant mating regions and why are they diverging as they appear to be? Unfortunately, I don't know the answer to that question yet because the work is still in progress. And uh, with that, I think I'll end my talk and take additional questions. Uh, these are the people that did the work. Uh, these are the members of the Genome Project, uh, the list that keeps growing. Um, then the Volvox MT work was done when I was a postdoc in Jim Newman's lab, and these were the two major uh, contributors to that. And uh, Patrick Ferris would also be underneath the Volvox MT. So I'll take any questions or comments. Have you tried inactivating that weirdly uh, sex divergent, uh, I guess, with RV in Volvox? Inactivated males or females? Uh, we have, and so we've done the male into female, and it doesn't do anything obvious. You sort of replace one with the other, or? So, we, so that's the problem, is we, don't, we haven't been able to do the replacement because we don't have RB minus Volvox at the moment. So we've done it, and we didn't see any like gains of function type uh, changes. Uh, I think how it's being done now, so Jim's lab has taken over uh, the next, where this project is going next. I think they're trying a complicated RNAi strategy where they RNAi out one and put the other in. Let's see if there's changes. Uh, my suspicion is that there is probably context dependent uh, terminal differentiation. Uh, basically, the RB is known to also regulate terminal dif differentiation. And by having two different isoforms of RB, it could help with terminal differentiation of sperm packets. That's one thing that we haven't looked at. Do you have a question, Christophe? Yeah, can you, this minus dominant gene, mm -hmm. can I, so if you take it away, then it's always positive, or could yep. it also be minus? Yeah, so it's a, that's how it was identified. Is a, it was identified in a minus strain that was mutagenized and no longer mated as a minus. And so it mates as a positive. And you can actually, so you can fully gender switch these. So if you take a strain that is either positive or MT minus, it's missing mid, that will mate with a positive. Or it'll mate, uh, sorry, it'll mate with a minus that, a pseudo minus that has mid in it. Can you uh, completely neutralize it? So make it non-mating? I'll say that again. So, uh, so, so completely neutralize it? I, uh, I mean, uh, uh, apparently if you take away the, 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 the locus, it will switch mating colors. But can you just um, sterilize it, basically? Oh, into non-mating? Yeah. Oh, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, these things predominantly reproduce asexually. So sex is actually a very unusual aspect of their biology. And they do keep the sex loci around, even though they're mitotically. 
so my postdoc in the lab is actually doing an interesting experiment. So what she's doing is she's doing this gender bender experiment where she's switching mating types. Mm -hmm. And so what she's doing is she's taking a strain that's defective in mid, and it's, or sorry, a positive that has mid in it, and then mating it to a strain that's defective in mid sequentially, such that the uh, mating type locus is the same, and seeing if that mating type locus will go away and a new one will be formed on the mid, because that's the only gender limited version of it. So she's basically switching the gender of the positive to a pseudo negative yeah. and mating it with a positive back and back and back to see if, because then the mating type locus will be, should be able to cross over and repair itself. Right. So presumably what would happen is the new mid gene that's somewhere else in the autosomes that's been transformed in should then be able to become a new sex loci or sex chromosome. Right. So basically the idea is can we create a new sex loci just with mid? So basically by being in disequilibrium, that's enough to drive chrom or sex chromosome evolution. I have no idea what's gonna come out of that, but it's an easy experiment to do to just keep mating them. Yeah. 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 At some point you said this algae had the, had cancer like people do. Uh, how does uh, cancer look like in this? Uh... So the cells do exactly like your tumors do. So they, uh, they're genetically unstable. Uh, in fact, they suppress within a couple weeks. You have to always be doing back crosses. They also, so they have uncontrolled growth and division. So those MAT3 cells basically just grow and divide, grow and divide. There's almost no control whatsoever of the process. And yeah, they're genetically unstable. So they frequently, uh, so you just grow these on plates and the mutations pop up all the time that suppress the MAT3. And if they don't suppress them at three, they survive. You have to basically transfer them every three to four days because they, like any, anything other than optimal conditions causes them to just die. So they'll grow and control in the light and in the dark? They're no longer growing in the light and dividing in the dark anymore? Uh, they do stay, you can, you can partially synchronize them. They do drop out a little bit of synchrony. Uh, that seems to me more of an issue. Well, we don't know entirely why, but I suspect it's because they're just unhappy, they're unhealthy. So they don't grow particularly well. Uh, interestingly, you can actually get them to grow better if you get them out of the light. So I think what's happening is they're unable to repair mutations that are occurring in the light. So you can grow them with acetate as their carbon source and they do grow much better. Yeah, they're genetically unstable. They're straight up tumors like you would expect. If you raise them completely in the light, so are they going to keep growing in the optimal medium? Uh, for all the algal species? Yeah. Uh, no, there's actually an upper limit to their cell size. Uh -huh. it's so a, is it also signaled by the cyclin? No, well, we don't know. Uh, we have a little bit of data from that from one of our, our CDK mutants. Uh, it seems to be, so that one has a large cell size as a mutant because it's an upstream activator. And so the, presu the presumption would be is if you have a large cell size mutant that its upper limit, if it's genetically controlled, would be bigger than wild type. But that's not true. In, those mutant in all the mutants, there is an upper limit of about 1,200 cubic microns. We think the upper limit is actually a physical constraint of some sort. We don't understand what that physical constraint is, but we don't think it's genetically determined. And what, what happens if it reaches this upper limit? Does it just uh, die or does it divide? They divide. Okay. Even in the light condition? No, so what they do is they, uh, they tend to, 
slow down their growth however they can and then they delay they do as much as they can to synchronize their uh, entry into division with the dark cycle and if they can't do that then they do enter the light cycle but so the first thing they do is they will drop their flagella because then they sink to the bottom of the flask but in our growth chambers we have lights in the top and the bottom so when they do that then they start dividing at the bottom of the flask if you do the opposite experiment where you take those same mutants and you just put the light on the top and they sink to the bottom they can generally shield themselves enough to time their entering the cytokinesis with the dark. And, and this is, so in, in, in these uh, is, the, is, the, is everything entirely controlled by the dark cycle? Do we also have a, uh, a biological clock? Yes, there is a, so there's a clock that, uh, so if you take a cell line and you synchronize it to 14 hours of light every day for however long, they'll keep that entrainment for uh, I think we've tested up to a week. It starts to lose its just like how tight the synchrony is, but they'll keep it as long as you don't change the light conditions. So if you switch them to dark uh, with acetate, they'll keep that synchrony. That's how that experiment's done. So that means they uh, you can train them using the light dark dark side. Yep. Or, but you cannot you cannot do this to any length. You cannot <coughs> make it one one hour. Or so. so there's also. As long as they'll divide, they'll entrain to anything. It's hard to entrain them to if they don't divide. So, so that suggests that they don't have a biological clock, uh, like a 24-hour clock. Oh no, no, they do. So, they uh, what, what happens is the the clock entrains when the division period should occur. Oh, okay. Okay. We have a candidate gene for it, but we're not. We haven't followed up on it. It's so there's it's known that uh, blue light is one of the helps entrain this internal clock that's not particularly well understood. But they, yeah, they do. Once, if you've been entraining them on a 14-hour clock, they anticipate that there's going to be dark at 14 hours, even if they're in acetate in the dark, and they'll start dividing. But once you, once you uh, remove the dark light cycle, they, they, they will not continue cycling. So, there's, because, for example, they're I mean, they just, uh, if you keep them in the light, they will just continue, for example, waiting their leaves. Yeah, so the algae will do that. The, the only thing is they have to have an alternate carbon source. So in, in the, most of the vulvicales, you can, add them, you can add acetate to them, and then they can keep growing. If you take away the light and they're in minimal media, they are not doing photosynthesis, so they don't grow. And so then the cell size or pathway takes over and drops them out of synchrony, essentially because they don't divide. Okay, so, so, okay, so we're keeping, keeping them on acetate in the dark, yep. but then they, they will keep, still keep... Uh, yep. uh, yeah, regular cycle. So it poses a really interesting technical uh, challenge. So in all other uh, eukaryotic species, you can generate an asynchronous population of cells quite easily. You may just basically grow up yeast and you have asynchronous yeast. Uh, we can't do that because if you start a flask from a single time point, that population of cells will keep cycling on the same time schedule. Hmm. Now they tend to pick about 12 to 14 hours if you don't give them any enforcement. So suggests there is some kind of communication uh, we think it's just they've been naturally adapted to, or, to an average day length of 12 hours. But then their clock needs to be exactly synchronized, and exactly uh, on the same, uh, needs to have exactly the same period, otherwise they shift. Well, they, they do subtly shift, but they, they just stay, they keep on dividing. Any crazy idea about why the sperm packet the world? <laughs> like, because the sperm packet is like, 30, 40 cells, yeah. like crazy. 
moving. So why instead of having like a clammy light, just fertilizing? Oh, so say that again. So why, so why a sperm packet versus a clammy type mechanism? Yeah, why, yeah, why oh, so you mean why you have a packet of cells that swim as a group? Yeah. Well, the original idea we had from the, the paper on the mating type locus was that was regulated by RB. And so that's why, you know, because RB was regulating incomplete cytokinesis and it evolved from something like gonium that, that made perfect sense that mm -hmm. its ancestor was gonium-like and so that mechanism stayed intact. But yeah, I don't know why. It's an unusual strategy because usually most uh, things that produce sperm tend to disperse the sperm, not dispersing yeah. them as groups. Uh, so we've also wondered too, there might be a selective pressure, so this typical thing that it takes more than one sperm to fertilize an egg. I suspect that's true with Volvox because it takes multiple sperm to penetrate the spheroid to fertilize the egg. But yeah, it's an unusual strategy for a, a sperm packet to undergo. In mice, uh, a colleague of mine did a study where she works on these mice where there are polygamous ones and monogamous ones, and uh, the monogamous ones, when they copulate with the female, they eject sperm that swim together in packets, and uh, the polygamous ones, their sperm are just doing their own individual thing, and she showed that the sperm that swim together can swim faster than, if, than, they, than they are able to on their own. Um, and so there was a suggestion that kin selection was last line of paper. So, you know, if you like that kind of thing, you can. Yeah, actually, the sperm packets swim really. I, I measured the swimming speed. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah, and they measure. They they swim really fast. Oh, there. Yeah, that, that, that's it. What? Faster than they would on their own. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, for a chlamydomonas cell, yeah, compared to so they they swim like a 300 microns per second, and a chlamydomonas cell will swim 50, 100 microns per second. Like three times. What about a single sperm? <clears throat> oh, that's yeah. a funny thing. So they're kind yeah, of crescent shaped. Yeah, they're like chlamydomonas like cells. So. But but how fast do they swim? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would think that it would swim similar to a chlamydomonas cell, but I don't know. I mean, I, at the end of the day, you got experiment of like breaking apart a yeah. sperm packet. No, actually, that brings up an interesting point. So, Volvox sperm are actually kind of like crescent shape, so they don't swim straight. They kind of they swim, they kind of tumble almost because they they're that shape that causes them to swim in circles. But when you if you ever look at these videos of Volvox fertilizing a female, it seems to help it penetrate the spheroid. Yeah, but it's amazing how fast they swim. Yeah. I mean, even though they don't swim, they swim really fast compared to a single cell. But I don't know a single sperm. Can you describe a little bit more of the sexual reproduction in Volvox, the sort of phenomenology, what happens there? Mm -hmm. And what is it that triggers it? There's this potent pheromone. Secreted by? By the female, mm -hmm. on stress conditions. And so then they go through this. The whole population goes through the sexual Yeah, so the... Uh... So an adult spheroid, there's male and female. Uh, when the female is stressed, uh, a protein that's interesting in its uh, life history is that it came from, it's putatively an ECM-related protein, it is released, and it's very, very potent. It works at probably nanomolar concentrations, possibly even sub-nanomolar. So it's excreted out into the environment or into the media. So the sex inducer then causes these eggs to divide into, or causes these uh, gonidial cells to divide into eggs. Uh, in the male, 
case, what the sex inducer does is it causes them to, these uh, gonidia cells undergo again multiple fission, and then they uh, turn into sperm packets through a bunch of additional uh, divisions that are essentially. So one of the weird things is that the female produces a cell like 10 germ cells, that typically of 16 germ cells, they produce like 30, 40 cycles. But the, the males, they look like very weird because you have all these sperm packets, like half of the cells or somatic cells become sperm packets. Yeah. It's, uh, morphologically, when they're in the asexual phase, they look the same, the male and the female, but then you have this yep. huge differentiation yeah, and so it's kind of shown here, it's hard to see, but the somatic cells de-differentiate uh, de into... You see like these rugby balls, these fo football balls that are the sperm packets, all on the whole sphere, right? So during sexual reproduction, the germline soma division breaks down because male somatic cells yeah. can contribute to the germline. Yeah, and also the females can go back to the sexual phase if they are not germinate, if they are not fertilized. Right? Yeah. But the males don't, they die. Yeah, so the somatic cells don't participate in the germline. They just uh, break down. That they might don't differentiate a sperm. No, no, no. That's probably a physical process because all these flagella appear on the sperm packets. I see. Oh, uh, that's not very well understood. So then this sperm packet then, as this spheroid starts breaking down, break loose, and they swim as a group. And then the group then interacts with the flagella on the somatic cells of the sexually induced female. And then these things then start breaking into their they're kind of almost crescent-shaped, and so which may deal with their penetration. But whenever this interaction here occurs, which is the same, so these flagella bind to the somatic cells, which is the same process as this right there. When that occurs, then that allows them to penetrate there, and then they swim inside the spheroid, and then fertilize an egg. And it's uh, monospermy, it's not polyspermy. So one female gamete is fertilized by one male gamete. Yep. And then inside that, somatic ball enclosing the, the fertilized, now fertilized gametes, they'll do those other sort of embryonic stages. Yep, so then these, yeah, these differentiate into fertilized zygotes, which are, these are uh, well, very easy to see in all the vulvicales. And then when this uh, goes through meiosis and breaks apart, three of the progeny dies and one lives. And the sex inducer pheromone is released by the somatic genome. It's transcribed from the somatic genome or the gonium genome or the the genome. You know? We don't know. Uh, do you have any insight into? Yeah, I don't think anybody's looked. Yeah, I don't know. And uh, I don't know if they've actually done the experiment yet. At one point, Jim's lab was getting ready to uh, <coughs> to separate these cells and do transcriptomes on them to see where things were being transcribed, because we just did stuff on whole spheroids. Yeah, it'd be interesting. They do sense heat. Very, I mean, it's, if you stress out a Volvox spheroid, it goes sexual immediately. And in fact, male, so males are kind of interesting because they're hard to culture. Because if they get stressed at all, they go sexual, yeah, and then they die. <laughs> yeah, so. I have Almost all strains, it's kind of interesting, just because they're like so uh, potent that if they get any stress whatsoever, like the whole culture will be lost. Only the females withstand stress. Yeah, because they can de-differentiate back into gonadial cells. Whereas men, or the males, when they, uh, <laughs> when they get, uh, <laughs> Really excited, they're done. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, and in general, the, the male strain, it's much smaller, the, the colonies, yeah. which are much smaller than the yeah. female strain. How can you distinguish between male and female in unstressed conditions when they're going through the vegetative cycle? Or do they all look no, the same? No, morphologically, they look the same. 
they, they are, I don't know why are these, the ones that I have, they grow smaller. Yeah, pretty much all of them that we yeah, find grow like small. Morphologically, they are identical. I, I mean, if you grow them like on ideal conditions, they will have less cells, the, stra the male strain or the female strain. Yeah. But morphologically, you, you wouldn't, if you just mix the population, you wouldn't. Have. So normally in the lab, you're culturing male and female strains separately, or you have yeah. them all yeah. I see. No, we do have to play one trick. So how we, so because the males are so unstable, uh, you actually keep them as zygotes, so that if you lose something, you can germinate it and get males and females back out. Those are kind of stable, those zygotes? Yep. It's one of the great tricks of this system is that all these zygotes, so all these zygotes, when they're orange like this, they're extraordinarily environmentally stable. So when we, if you want to mate populations of clammy and get rid of the unmated cells, you produce the zygotes and you can treat them with chloroform, silicate, SDS, freeze them, whatever you want to do, and they'll survive all of that and germinate. And same thing with Volvox. So you basically keep the, keep the zygotes in freezer? Yep. Yeah, it's easier than doing like, so liquid nitrogen freezing of algae doesn't work that well. So it's easier just to create a zygote. Yep. There's uh, one person in the world that can do this very, very efficiently, and we need a life insurance policy on this guy. <laughs> yeah, because that for me it was it's so complicated. Yeah, uh, one of the technical aspects of Volvox that really kind of sucks is that this sexual cycle right here, it's hard to produce uh, zygotes that are stable, and it's hard to get them to germinate. And we don't know if that's because these uh, different sexes have been sex isolated for so long or if the environmental isolates were not sexual, fully sexually compatible, but there's a lot of zygotic lethality. But the, other, the other thing is that you have other species where you have the male and the female, you know, what's it, all the, together, you know? Yeah. I mean, they can, oh, what's the, what's the name, the scientific name for? Oh, monoecious? Yeah, monoecious. So yeah, they're both male and female parts. So you have all the combinations. Just Volvox criteria happens to do Yeah, that. yeah. But then you have all these. You have the modulation. I have a Volvox variable strain that will go sexual all the time, and we have the sperm packets and the eggs on the same okay. Yeah, so Ferrisi is one of these that's monoecious. So it has both male. So these gonidia will develop into both um, eggs and sperm packets in the same spheroid. I see. And then fertilize each other? They're cell fertile? That we don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, I got, I got, yeah, uh, for. I get spores. Do you have parasite? Yeah, I, for, for the barbara strain that I have, I get spores. Because it's uh, it self-fertilizes, yeah. Yeah, but I never germinated them. So I get the orange spores, but yeah. spores, but I So one of the interesting things about the system, oops, too, is that, uh, so, in that, so we have natural isolates of gonium, and when you produce zygotes, they don't like to germinate. They, I think it's less than 1% germinate. If you start selecting these for germination, uh, you can select them in two or three rounds and you'll get them to germinate within a couple weeks. Uh, the same is actually true for Chlamydomonas. Uh, it's just that we have really good lab strains of Chlamydomonas that germinate much more quickly. There's probably some really cool pond biology going on here that we're glossing over at the moment. Yeah, the sexual phase is haploid and the spore is deep. These are like real dry, dry spores. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you can. I mean, they, they, they will be on, on the dirt anywhere. I mean, 
you can just get a dirt from the lake and then put it on medium and they, they will try to come over because it will terminate. They are everywhere, they can resist for years in the stage, in the dust, in the dry. That's where we got all of our, so we got some population isolates of Pandorina. So you have some populations of? Of Pandorina, which yeah. is a little colony one. And I got that from Annette Coleman. The soil sample that they were germinated from was collected in the like, late 40s. Really? And is this also how you keep the strains in your lab? You just keep the dry spores? Or? We do destroy them. To do the actual biology, you just keep transferring them every day because they grow asexually. Okay. Yeah. So they'll grow and divide and grow and divide. It's not that easy to germinate them. You know. All right. So yeah. better just to keep yeah, them on the asexual phase. You, you can't like, in the asexual phase, you can, can you freeze them and no. revive them? You can kind of do Chlamydomonas, but uh, it's not a lot of fun. Okay. So you take them, you sequentially add methanol to them over two days and then freeze them and okay. less than 1% of the cells survive. All right. All right. So, so keeping a zygotes is usually preferred. Yeah. And that's like all of our backup strains are zygotes. Oh, oh okay. Right. Back to home, I have a refrigerator full of zygotes for various right. strains. Okay. In case my lab ever burns down, I'll have zygotes. Sorry, you have? In case my lab ever burns down, I'll have zygotes. So you like, still have somewhere else uh, yeah. a larger uh, zygotes? Because there's not that many labs that culture these things. So there's my lab, Christian has some. Yeah, of course, I don't have any zygotes actually. Yeah. I have all, all of the asexual phase. I have okay. 40 strains. Oh. And every three weeks, I. It's not that every three weeks I, refresh, I replicate all the things, and I have the But uh, the vulva. Volvocalis field is plagued with labs that have had like uh, growth room failures and have lost an entire like yeah. strain collections. Uh, really? Yeah, the culture collections, so the Utex culture collections, they lost a lot. Yeah. They were cured strains, mutants. So you just have a power failure and then everything. Good, yeah, well, if you're not careful. It would be a, a week without light. Uh, I mean, but yeah, like if you go to a meeting for two months. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't take care of, or the medium is not well or whatever, then you lose all the strains, or, or it gets contaminated by fungi or by whatever, bacteria, or, yeah. You guys have so a stock center somewhere? Uh, yeah, sort of. The CCAP has some in Scotland, Germany, Japan, and Utex, they have different strains. And then Aurora and Adelco has strains, he has, I have. So the Japanese group is the only one that accepts new submissions. So UTEX is on life support. Uh, CCAP still takes things sometimes, but not really. So we, we typically go with the Japanese group because they will take new submissions. But we just do a distributed policy where everybody has everybody's strains.